So that's the point of view I come into this with is that whatever it takes, even if it's just a shower and a clean clothing, we want to help people feel better about who they are today and stop worrying about who they were yesterday. Right. This is Susan Chestnut of the Chestnut Law Firm. This is my podcast from foster care to family law, a child welfare focus. I was raised in the foster care system. I was a child abuse investigator for the Department of Children and Families. And now I'm an attorney practicing family law where my passion is to focus on the best interests for the children involved. In my podcast, I will be meeting with industry experts exploring the seemingly impossible scenarios that families often struggle to manage. Each episode will include insights and concepts from professionals that deal with these issues every day. I'm here with my friend Tara McDonald. She is a behavioral health technician. She has experience in the substance abuse recovery field. She's also on the board with me with Team Success as a committee chair for the recovery outreach program. Hi, Tara. Thank you for coming. Hi, Susan. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, ma'am. So tell me about how you got started in substance abuse recovery. So I, I have my own experience. But it had been, I've been sober for some time when I started work at a treatment center in the billing department, coming out of corporate America. And I think I was there about a month and a half. And one of my very good friends lost his daughter to an over, a heroin overdose. And I'll give a plug for my friend Matt Beckwith, who put up with me, not knowing anything about the current drug scene. And I was like, they said she overdosed on heroin. No one does heroin. He's no honey, everyone does heroin now. What do you mean? Nobody does heroin. That's a direct from the 70s. He's like, no, really, everyone's doing it. I was like, oh, okay. And they were, where I was working at the time, was really good about bringing in all these educational things for the tax and the people that worked with the clients. They were like, no, if you want to come, even though you're in billing, you can come. So I started going to all this stuff to learn more. And when did and you then, start doing that? 2015, 2016, I sat through Narcan training and was at the time the Florida Harm Reduction Initiative. They are now Rebel Recovery out of Palm Beach. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I want to do. So this plan of harm reduction has been building for a very long time. When you talk about harm reduction, what does that mean necessarily? So there's a misconception, I think, to the public as to what it means. For me, harm reduction is a full umbrella of services. Team success, or we listed on the board, is very much about ending poverty and all that. So that falls into it, but it's also about meeting people where they're at today. So what I mean by that is if I'm working with somebody who is living in the woods and is happy living in the woods, I'm not going to push them the leaves, but I'll give them food. I'll give them Narcan. So forbid something happens, they have it with them. Hopefully we have to help them with medications soon. And yes, if they're not using intravenous drugs, we will exchange needles for them in the future. Florida is okay that with major constraints. Right. That we're going to have to work through. But overall, harm reduction is about helping people where they're at today. And sometimes that may simply look like 
I don't have a ride to my doctor's appointment and we hook them up with transportation to get to a doctor's appointment. It may be complete case management, helping someone get insurance, food stamps, rental assistance. It can mean any number of things. I was extremely um, fortunate when I had my oldest child. We we're living in New Hampshire and I was homeless for a while. I lived in a shelter for three months and then this miraculous program came along and we went into transitional housing for a year and a half. And that completely changed my life. So I want to help people get there. Mm -hmm. And I don't think addiction has to bar somebody from being able to get into housing or having those basic needs met because I really believe that it's a vicious cycle. If I'm working at McDonald's and I can't pay my rent and I'm going to end up homeless again, I'm going to go back to using. And once I go back to using, it's just going to get worse. So it's just the pieces all fit together and they all make this vicious cycle for people that they can't get out of. So I guess we're fortunate that Team Success is willing to um, let us merge in because Restoring dignity is what Mike's all about. And I talk openly about when I went into treatment when I was 17. One of the things I remember, and I don't remember a whole lot about that first week, it's just feeling good because I got to take a hot shower and put on clean clothes. And that restored so much of my dignity and made me feel so much better and made me feel like a person again. Mm -hmm. So that's the point of view I come into this with is that whatever it takes, even if it's just a shower and a clean, a clean clothing, we want to help people feel better about who they are today and stop worrying about who they were yesterday. Right. Stop judging them from their past and let them yeah. have a little bit of dignity now in the present. Absolutely. The recidivism rate for addicts is huge. Relapse is a huge issue right now because the drugs are stronger. People are getting addicted easier. So being able to have those opportunities where they can have a second, third, fourth chance is important. And a lot of programs, especially paid treatment, are done. You know, you relapse too many times, they're not going to help you anymore. We're, the point of this program is to bridge that gap. We'll be there whether you relapse twice or you relapse a hundred times. Yeah. You pick up the phone, we come, we help try to make things better for the moment and help you find what you need. So... Let's talk about your story because I feel like that's what's giving you your ability to empathize with what people are going through and to try to give them that same restoration that you had. The drugs that you're talking about that are different now, are you referring to the availability of prescriptions or just that there's different combinations of street drugs now or what do you mean? The availability of prescription painkillers, how much fentanyl there is on the street. Narcan is the Lazarus drug, they call it, because you can bring somebody out of a heroin overdose. A lot of people don't realize if your heroin's got with too much fentanyl, you can't be brought back. Right, and fentanyl... It's so much more powerful. That's a newer drug, right, fentanyl? That is a newer drug. It's something that started to really show up on the scene in the last probably five years. We've seen a lot of it. And isn't uh, that one of those drugs that only needs a very small, minuscule amount to be lethal? 
yeah, it, you don't need as much for it to be lethal, and it's more highly addictive. It's manufactured. It doesn't come from a plant. And whenever you start dealing with things that are manufactured rather than dip, made out of a plant, as silly as it sounds, they're more addictive. They are harsher on your body. So, yeah, fentanyl has become a really big issue. And the drugscape changes all the time. Like they said, I, I didn't know that people into 2015 were using heroin because I knew two people in my entire life about all the addicts I had known that used heroin. Right. And they were both dippy dippy. We should have been born in the 70s, people. So I was like, okay. What do you mean? But heroin made a huge comeback. It was, when I um, was using it was crack and cocaine. Mm-hmm. You don't see that as much anymore. Right. Yeah. That's stayed in that poor, and not to um, of anyone, but a poor black section of the country. That's where you see that. And I won't get into all the <laughs> political stuff about that because. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you, you see that in a poorer socioeconomic class. What about the landscape? How have you seen it change in the last five years since you started doing your recovery concentration? People are starting to become more and more open, I think. But it's it's a slow battle to get people to open their minds and not... I'll tell you. Here we go. I'll give you the story. So wait, we have, I have a girl in treatment right now where I do my internship. Um, called an Uber driver, was on her little trip, wherever she was going, I don't know where she was going. Uber driver's pleasant, friendly, whatever. She says to her about halfway through the trip, so what brought you to Florida? Because the girl says, I, I don't know, maybe around, I just moved here. She says, what brought you to Florida? And the girl says, oh, I'm in a recovery. The conversation stopped at, she just stopped talking to her. Really? I felt like she was looking at me in the rear view mirror like I was going to try to steal her car. She's like, the minute I mentioned that I was an addict, she shut down. Once an addict, always. But it's once an addict, always an addict. Absolutely. So if you treat people like that, then you don't recognize that they are in recovery and truly working on themselves. And that's the problem with Don Q Public, right? Yeah. So they get until that stigma is broken and there's some great groups out there right now trying to break that stigma and making headway it's going to continue to be this thing that we keep in dark closets and we don't talk about and we're not open about and that kills more people than anybody anything that people are ashamed to talk about it that people are ashamed to admit their child their brother their sister their spouse is an addict mm-hmm. and needs help mm-hmm. There's still so much of that sweeping it under the carpet because it's not what we want the public to see us as. It's not what we want our friends and neighbors to know about. Yeah. I remember when Rush Limbaugh came out with his prescription pill problem, how many people judged him about that. And many people are prescribed addictive medication. Absolutely. But unfortunately, as a society, we haven't learned how to overlook that yet. Yeah. And we need to what, not even overlook it, just accept people where they are. Because if you were to tell somebody I have cancer and this is my medication, they wouldn't look at you twice. They would do the, oh, I'm so sorry. I hope you, I hope you do well. All those things, that comfort and compassion we come through. 
But when you deal with drug addicts, people, it's really hard to admit to being an addict or admit to having an addict close to you. Mm -hmm. And there's also, when you bring up the cancer medication, it seems as if ordinary people seem to put individuals in a box. Whereas if you're a medical marijuana smoker, you're somehow different than a street marijuana smoker because of where you get your marijuana, but it's still marijuana, right? Yep. But the stigmas are different. Absolutely. It's Mm -hmm. illegal. Besides that. That makes such a huge difference. Working with alcoholics, you see it a lot because societally we accept alcohol, right? Everywhere you go, it's okay to have a drink with dinner. You never see a waiter come out and be like, hey, which vial of heroin would you like tonight with your dinner? <laughs> they come right out and ask you what you want to drink. Hey, can I, what's the first thing I have from this restaurant say, say to you? Yeah. Can I get you something from the bar? Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? That brings up a good point talking about the stigma. Recently, I quit drinking January 3rd a year ago. I saw that. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And I I did it for my own personal reasons. And recently I had someone ask me, well, you quit drinking. If you had a drinking problem, I need to know right now. Why? And, And then automatically there was that stigma. But I chose to quit drinking for my own personal reasons. But then there was the stigma, the judging. And I didn't understand it at all. But I'm so glad that you brought that up because people know who you are Mm -hmm. and that you're a pillar in your beach society, right? And it just goes to show that addiction isn't picky. Choose whomever. You can be an attorney or you can be the guy who's bagging groceries at Publix. It doesn't matter. White, black, pink, it doesn't care. It will take you out. It absolutely And some of it starts in childhood. A lot of the addicts that I have worked with in dependency, they began drinking or smoking or using their parents' drugs or hanging out with the wrong crowd at a very young age. And these habits and behaviors start in your teen years or even your preteen years sometimes I've seen. Yeah. So one of the things that I have fallen into a rabbit hole about is the correlation between reactive attachment disorder and addiction. Okay. Reactive attachment disorder is this diagnosis that they give to children under six who, for one reason or another, suffered from neglect not being able to attach to and bond to a caregiver. So you see it a lot in adopted kids, and you also see it a lot in the children of addicts, especially, I'll go back to heroin users, that lock themselves in the bathroom to get high. So the kids are left sitting outside the door and crying for mom or dad. But kids don't learn who to go to. Who's going to soothe me? Who's going to make me feel good? And that carries on into those preteen years. Even the kids that have been adopted into healthy homes are gone to foster care that's healthy. And with foster parents who are really trying to help them, they end up going toward addiction. And what sparked my interest was that so many of my clients are adopted. Really? And I'm like, why are all these kids that are adopted in treatment? And then I read something about reactive attachment disorder, and I'm like, oh, wait, if I put these two pieces together, there's something here. And look at how our childhood is playing into our adulthood, even, yeah, even unconsciously. Yeah, realize it. Unconsciously, in those first six months that they don't remember, 
they were left alone in a crib or whatever it may be, but they were neglected. They, they didn't know how to soothe and they learn, they have to learn to soothe themselves. And as they get older, they view drugs as a way of self-medicating and soothing. Mm-hmm. My own history as a foster child, I didn't learn until I became a professional in the child welfare system that my own experience led me to be predisposed to so many things, drugs, domestic violence relationships, all types of bad situations that I was more susceptible to being in without even knowing, but nobody educated me on that when I was younger. Where do you, how are you educating people now? You know what? I, we're not doing that right now. And I think that's a big deal. It, it's extremely important that we learn to deal with the trauma of our childhood and those scars we carry with, them, with us. So I come from a little bit of an odd family. My mother was abused by my grandmother. She ran away at 12 to escape the abuse to New York City, made a living as a prostitute home pregnant with me my grandmother was a master manipulator convinced her that she wasn't the problem that it was my mother that if my mother wasn't such a horrible terrible child that none of those things would have happened so my mother agreed to do a sealed adoption i know within a family they did a sealed adoption my mother agreed to never let me that she was my mother that came out much later so i grew up into and my mother and I have talked about this. Neither one of us remember how I found out. When I found out, I know it had to be in probably around 15, 14, 15 years old that I found out. I'm assuming it must have been something traumatic because, like I said, neither of us can remember it. My grandmother was unmedicated bipolar and she was just mean. <laughs> yeah. She was violent and mean. And by today's standards, I probably would have ended up in a foster home. But in 1980, <laughs> In Fort Pierce, Florida, they weren't taking kids and putting them in foster homes because their parents were hitting them in the front yard. That just wasn't that. I can remember the police being called and her being told that if she was going to hit me to take me either in the house or out back because it was disturbing the neighbors. So very abusive childhood, emotionally, physically, raped at 16 by a stranger, broke into the house where I was babysitting. My parents and their logic decided to buy that house later from the girl I babysat for. And we moved into that house and lived there for about nine months. The house that you were raped in? Yeah. <laughs> That's an odd decision. Isn't it? Yeah. They were special. It sounds it. Um, my grandmother killed herself right before my 21st birthday. So I went into pseudo adulthood. I moved from Florida to New Hampshire because I wasn't allowed to come home and I left. So complete abandonment issues throughout my whole life. When I found out my mother had given me up except my two younger sisters, real difficult stuff that I worked with. <laughs> it took me a long time to work through. And mom and I are super close now, oddly enough, and not close to, she's not close to my other two sisters, but a lot of anger and how could you do this? You knew what she was gonna do. Why would you keep them and not keep me? So a lot of low self-esteem and that persistent low self-esteem and self-worth, it's the same thing. Drugs made me feel better. When did you start using drugs? I started drinking when I was probably 13. Mm -hmm. There's the teenager preteen thing I yeah. was talking about. I started drinking when I was about 13. Smoked crack for the first time when I was 17. 
funny, we were just talking about this at work the other day. First time I did it, I knew I really didn't want to stop cover. That's what, that's why, because it's crack. Yeah, there was no build up to it. It was, I did it once and I was like, oh my God, I want to feel like this for the rest of my life. Uh-huh. Went to treatment. How old they, were you when you went to treatment, Tara? I was 17. I was Baker active. I my grandmother, oddly enough, after she had thrown me out of the house. So they did, and most of them have been through treatment, have heard this at some point. Look to your right, look to your left. One of you aren't going to make it. Really? They tell you that? Yeah. They did, yeah. Do you still believe that to be true? Absolutely. And that fear keeps me from going out and smoking crack all the time. Okay. Because I knew it was me. There was no doubt in my mind, I was the one out of the three that wasn't going to make it. Because I'd already had the experience whatever, losing consciousness and waking up to someone beating on my chest and screaming at me not to die. So I knew that it would be me. Because I knew that I, did, I liked it too much. I moved to New Hampshire. Felt was engaged within, I moved in August, I was engaged by Thanksgiving, healthy choices. Moved <laughs> <laughs> away with him over Thanksgiving weekend. Not that he was a bad guy. He just, funny enough, I just make it work. I couldn't be happy with it. But you weren't emotionally capable, I'm guessing. No, probably not. And, you know, he, he wasn't abusive enough for me. I was looking for someone that was going to be horrible to me for it because of my low self esteem and low, low self worth. Well, it's not just that, Tara. It's because we seek out what we're comfortable with, even if it's not healthy. Yeah, he was just too nice. Broke that off. Moved to the city. Drinking through all this. Cocaine Anonymous used to tell you you could drink out of the silver. And he used to tell you it was okay as long as you didn't do cocaine. Either. So I was like, I can drink. Woo! Now I'm 18 and I, I've got this drinking problem going on. And then it was just a matter of time. It started to snowball again. It's so funny. I say this all the time. My, client, my clients call me out for it. They always say, hey, you've never done drugs, right? And I'm like, that. I wasn't always the fat old lady. <laughs> there was a point where I weighed 100 pounds left and, less and I was 25 years younger. So, yes, I have done drugs. <laughs> yes, I do have an addiction issue. I've just shed that skin at this point. You guys can't tell by seeing me. And then it always turns into this. You go to meetings and I'm like, oh, you know, I go when I need one. I know when I need one and make up. I'm like, after all these years, there are times still to this day that things trigger me. And I'm like, oh, that's not the right feeling. You better go get that in check. So, so there's I a bit of maintenance then that yeah. continues. Cocaine, because it wasn't crack and I was snorting it, so it wasn't a problem. Obviously, these things aren't true. These are what I, I was selling acid and using it as much as I could because it was like the ultimate escape from being me. Drinking a lot. And I had my first child when I was 20. Her father was abused emotionally, mentally, emotionally not available. He's an alcoholic. He continues to drink now in I'm 50. He's in his mid-50s. Uh-huh. Still drinking, almost lost his foot because of his drinking, and he continues to drink. Then I, I bounced around from one abusive relationship to the next. So tell me the effect, because at this point your daughter's born. I had my daughter in 1995, so yeah. At one point, it was me, my daughter, me and my two girls. They were 
how old were they when we moved? They were five and nine when we moved back to Florida. Mm-hmm. So they both, I am internally grateful that my children will tell you that they never remember seeing me looking like I was high or drinking. They don't remember any of that. I was very careful about not letting my children see me that way because I didn't want them to see that. I, Rihanna was probably, let's see, Raven would have been probably about five and Rihanna was probably about a year and a half when I made the decision that all the partying was just pulling me way too far away from my kids and I needed to slow down. And I gave up doing the cocaine and doing the acid. I was like, I'll go to the bar once in a while. And then that slowed down probably two years later. I was like, maybe once a month I'll go to the bar instead of every weekend. So I stopped, thankfully, when my kids were young enough that they don't have um, real clear memories of me stopping. But definitely the move back to New Hampshire or back from New Hampshire to Florida was also a big part of that. I I know the old AA saying was a change in latitude or a change your attitude. I'm a firm believer that a change in latitude along with a change of attitude can go a long way. Are you talking Uh, about relocating? What? Change in latitude. What is that? Yeah, moving. Moving. Okay. Yeah. Getting getting away from the bad influences. Yeah, like, yes, latitude line. So if you move, if nothing's going to get better. They would tell you, both tyrants. But if you change your attitude and where you are, I think it makes a big deal. Because it made it, it worked for me. I got away from everyone I got high with, tempted anymore. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know the bar scene. I didn't know any of that. So it was a fresh start that I very much needed. So we came back when I was 30. And that was about the end of me using anything. Yeah. Because I was just done. I was sick of waking up and feeling like crap and seeing my kids in front of the TV because I couldn't get up on Saturday to go do something with them. I was just sick of that whole vicious cycle. I was sick of um, trying to figure out how I was going to pay the bills because I had spent all the money at the bar the night before. And I didn't like myself a whole lot at that point. I went back to therapy, tried to be open, tried to talk as much as I could about everything. It's funny, every time I go back to therapy, something else comes up and I'm like, oh, really? You think that's an issue? And they're like, uh, yeah, okay. (laughs) I didn't know that was a problem. If you're in your 50s and you've been having this path since you were 13 and even you were set on that path before, that's a lot of trauma to endure. And there's a certain amount of normalization. I'll never forget when I first started to, when I got out of treatment and moved to New Hampshire, I started seeing a therapist. I started seeing a therapist when I moved into shameless plug for anyone in New England. I see this family and families in transition. And my dear friend Maureen said, you need a therapist. And I said, no, I don't. I'm fine. I went to treatment and she said, I don't care where you went. You need a therapist. Uh-huh. I said, no, really? I'm okay. And she said, no, really? If you want to stay in my program, you're going to get a therapist. Have you changed your view on that now? What? Have you changed your view on therapy now? Oh, yeah. I was just stubborn and I didn't want to do anything. I 
I'm very fortunate that she put up with me for the year and a half I was in her program. I think there were times when she thought, you're going to get my program shut down, and they were relatively new at the time. And there were a lot of rules, and I broke every one of them. And, like, we would do, last time I saw her, we were joking about this. She would tell me, you need to do 90 and 90 because we'll be home drunk again. We'd be like, are you kidding? And she'd be like, no, the rule. You came home drunk. You're not supposed to come home inebriated you're not allowed to do drugs on the property 90 meetings 90 days and they get to like 30 and then she'd call me back into the office and she'd be like did you come on drunk on thursday night and i'd be like what she's like did you come back to the apartment drunk on thursday and i'm like yes all right start again 90 and 90 <laughs> i did 30 she'd be like they don't count start again so i did 90 and 90 probably 50 times while i was there and I didn't care. I just would laugh at her and go do my meeting and then go to the bar. But she wouldn't let me stay in housing unless I went to get therapy. And I went and saw this therapist she recommended because she knew there was something wrong. She, went, she didn't know the whole story, but she knew there was some deep trauma there. She's also a product of the um, foster care system. So she recognizes a sick person, another sick person when she sees them. And I was talking to him probably in my second session, maybe my third. And I said something about being beat with a belt. And he said, oh, stop. And I said, what? He said, that's not normal. And I'm like, what do you mean? He said, that doesn't happen in normal families. I'm like, what do you mean? He said, do you ever see your friends get hit with a belt? I'm like, none of my friends ever saw me get hit. My parents just kept like, so that when they left, they could beat me for what I did wrong while they were there. Isn't that what everybody does? And he's, no, honey, that's not normal. Mm-hmm. But we get into this pattern where we think this stuff is normal. We just assume everybody else is hiding. And that carries on into addiction. We assume that what we're going through, everybody else knows about, but they don't. And it took a long time for me to realize that a lot of what happened to me wasn't normal. But there were people out there who were my people and they could normalize it for me because they had been through it too. They got me, went to adult children of alcoholics because of him and sat back and was able to say, oh, this is how I grew up. Mm-hmm. He's right. My grandmother was an alcoholic without foods because she was severely manic wasn't the same in the eighties. They were just starting to get the feel for it. I think now. Everybody has manic depression. Mm-hmm. Everybody's bipolar. She was bipolar. She would come home one day and I would be the love of her life and she wanted to take me shopping. And the next day she'd come home yelling at me before she even spoke anything had even been said to her about what a waste of money everything she bought me the day before was and how she hated me and I was ruining her life. So I never knew who was coming through the door, much like an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And that does something to you and you live with that for 18 years 16 17 to me when i was 17 the 17 years it does something to your psyche and to your core belief system it does something to your soul tara it does something to your soul it leaves an imprint on your soul i believe much like my mother and i didn't know this until many years later that it was me that I really was the cause that she was so miserable and so unhappy and the cause for the abuse and the, I guess, over punishment 
was me because I was such a rotten person and I was such a horrible kid. And my mother and I got to sit down and take notes after my grandmother had already passed and compare our stories and what had happened because I remained really angry for a long time about that. It's probably until right before I moved. And she's, I felt the same way though. She's like, she told me for so long that it was all about me, that it was me who made her crazy. It was me. I made her think me. I was horrible. I was bad. So I know it was, I, I kept telling her, and this is so mean, um, that she treated me like a puppy. She had a puppy she didn't want and just gave her away. And she's like, that's not what I did. I don't know how to get it through your head. I really thought she could be a good mom. I thought it was me. So now we have a good relationship and we can laugh about some of that stuff that we both had to go through growing up. But it becomes your core belief. You believe that about yourself, right? I believed I was a horrible person. I believed I was going to be a failure. I and then I went out and I found men that were willing to validate those feelings. They would tell me, you're stupid. You're too stupid to do this. You're not worthy. I don't know why I put up with you. So I continued those patterns for a very long time. I'm very fortunate that I did go back to therapy <laughs> multiple times for two months. But I think it's important for people to know too that. Yeah. Therapy isn't a one and done situation. Sometimes you go and you feel better and then something new happens in your life and things change and you need to go back. You know what um, I have learned? I learned this in my master's degree, but I also learned it through therapy myself that there's two different types of stress. There's the good stress that happens when you have babies, you get married, graduate from yeah. college, and then there's the bad stress. But they elicit the same triggers and responses chemically in your body. So any stressful situation, good or bad, may need attention like that. Absolutely. And we all struggle with things throughout life. We'll talk about the fact that I love Phoenix, right? We, talk, we were talking about I had worked at Phoenix Rising for a while. And that's another treatment facility. It's another treatment facility. I was a counselor. I made a choice to step down and become a tech somewhere because it was too much. A, a behavioral technician, yes. Behavioral technician, that's the fancy word for it. But what I is mean, that? I, it's, what's different about a behavioral technician than a counselor? I'm an overpaid babysitter. Okay. I make sure the clients are doing what they're supposed to they're going to their supposed to and that their food's getting ordered basic stuff they don't cancel at all anymore but i was driving 45 minutes each way to work i was going to school and i was trying to do an internship and both phoenix and foundations where i do my internship needed time from me and i just didn't have it uh-huh and then this opportunity opens up where i can work 3 to 11 so i can give my internship the hours they need from me i can still work for full time and support my family and i'm working five minutes down the road that's a better fit. It's so much better of a fit, but making that change was so stressful. There it is. And that's good stress. It was stress, so hard. It was a right? huge change. And I left behind people that I really like and care about at Phoenix. There are people there to this day that I really like and care about. And it was hard to leave. When you talk about stress, that, that took it. That was a slow decision that I was going to leave. Unfortunately, my hand got forced a little bit, but... It was a slow decision for me that it wasn't the best place for me to be. Yeah, it, I got away with it, doing it without therapy. Those are the kinds of situations sometimes. But I'm fortunate too, because remember I work with therapists now. So I can go to people and be like, listen, let me tell you what's going on in my life. Oh, 
and luckily everyone I work with is great. So really, yeah. will you tell me a little bit more? I know that you have two passions that I'm aware of. One is the recovery program that, with the harm reduction. And then the other is working with the homeless population. Yeah, we're tying the two in together. Right. Um, we're going to go. So that I'll give you the Terra Dream <laughs> program, which would be we have some sort of mobile unit. I would want it to be like a mobile home. So we have AC, we have a shower, we have a bathroom that people who are homeless can come in, sit someplace that's cool, have a cold drink, maybe get a sandwich or whatever and do a very basic registration process because unfortunately you need money to run these things and people expect you to be able to tell them where the money goes and how many people you're serving. So some sort of minor registration so you can keep track of how many people we're serving and what we're servicing them for and finding out what they truly need. One of the things, the two big things for me is meeting people where they're at and their decisions without them at the table. So being able, and not physically where they're at, but being able, like we talked about at the beginning, to service them where they're at, whether it be in the woods or in a hotel room or a halfway house, whatever. And where they're at, that would be where they are physically. So where they are emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, what they want to be doing, if they're happy where they are, because Sometimes you forget people are happy living under the bridge. It's not our job to pull them out from under the bridge. That will never be my job to pull you out from under the bridge if you don't want to come with me. My job will be to make sure that you're safe and that you have what you need while you're under the bridge. And I'm not going to make those decisions for you. So that's what I mean by you get to be at the table. If we're case managing with somebody, they get to be at the table and make those decisions as to what they want. I don't get to tell you what you want. You need to tell me. And sometimes you take that away from our addicted and homeless population. We just assume we know what's best. The best analogy I heard was um, some somebody was going to give a homeless guy a sandwich and it had all kinds of stuff on it, lettuce, tomatoes, onions, whatever. <laughs> and he's no, thank you. I don't want that. And the guy was like, obviously he's not that hungry. If he want to take my sandwich. And somebody else was like, did you consider maybe he doesn't eat roast beef? And my daughter, who is awesome and does a lot of volunteer work and pizza hungry, has a guy that doesn't eat carbs. He lives under a bridge, but he doesn't eat carbs. And he doesn't change that because they bring sandwiches. Yeah. They make sure they bring a salad or something for him because he that's him. If you can be homeless and not eat carbs or be a vegetarian or a vegan or not eat red meat. People have the right to still have those basic human decisions. Uh-huh. And it's important that we respect that. Whether they're homeless or addicted, you, you have to respect people because that's that first step of feeling like somebody respects you and is, is treating you with dignity, right? Mm-hmm. I'm treating you with dignity. Right. I value your decisions. I let you make your own decisions. I realize you're not a child and I don't need to tell you what to do. Then you may ask me to tell you what to do at some point because you're not sure, or you may need advice and guidance. And I'm all for that. Um, I'm going to get my master's to be a licensed mental health counselor. And I'm a huge proponent of 
person-centered therapy and of what person-centered therapy i believe everybody has the answers within them i'm just there to guide you so i'm like the gps i think that's probably true because everything should be individually tailored it's, yeah, it's not a cookie cutter application and we have the answers within us especially addicts are the smartest most creative people i have ever met fall into addiction so they we know the answer it's in there somewhere somebody just needs to guide us to get there so that's my approach to helping is it's going to be person-centered I'm just going to be here to guide you. You have a voice no matter what the decision's going to be. Is that difficult? Absolutely. Sometimes it's difficult. But that's what we need to be doing. And oh, so the homeless and the addiction all falls into the same piece for me. But we would have a, a mobile unit, right, where we could do these things with people. Let we me ask be, you, Tara, let me ask you this real quick. Yeah. Is there a link? Because... I, I was recently somewhere where they were not very educated about homeless in general. So let's take this opportunity just a little bit, but is there a link between homelessness and mental health issues, homelessness and substance abuse issues? Are there underlying causes of homelessness? Absolutely. If you're spending all your money getting high, then you don't have a house eventually. Right. If you're living with people who aren't willing to tolerate you getting high and they throw you out, you're homeless again, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, sober homes are a great example of that. Rent's $150 a week, and I know people are like, oh, that's not, that's not that bad. It's pretty bad if you're working at McDonald's and I got to cough up $150 a week to you, and I pay my month's rent, and I pee in the cup, and I pee dirty, and you tell me to pack my shit and get out. Right. You've got my whole paycheck. Where am I going? Absolutely. Well, I'm going to a trap house. I'm going couch surfing and let's not get. Let's not forget. Couch surfing is homeless. You don't have a permanent roof over your head. Couch surfing is homeless. But I talk about homeless. That's what I, anyone who doesn't have that permanent roof over their head, they know they have something safe to go at night and put their head down. Mm -hmm. It's homeless. So now you're homeless again. How do you get out of those situations? Well, normal, for addicts, a lot of times, we don't. We start using again because we don't know what else to do. We're sad. We're angry. We have all these emotions about being thrown out of our halfway house or wherever, and we just continue to use even harder because we're going to push down whatever we're feeling no matter what. And if and, it came from any abandonment issues, you've just re abandoned again. Yeah, you've just done it again. And mental health issues, I think one of the biggest things that are facing us via mental health and Michael from the president of the board of Team Success, I've talked about this and it's something we're working on getting started up as a medication kind of resource thing where we have some resources in at least in the River community right now. Where we can send people to get medications paid for but if you have severe mental illness and you can't pay for your meds and you have to come off of them, that can be devastating to any progress you make. And a lot of times when you're dealing with schizophrenics, major depression, bipolars, they don't function well when, they have, when they're living with other people and other people get fed up. 
for lack of a better word, and tell them to get out. Where do they go? You know, where do you go when your family's like, no, you can't come here anymore because when you go into that spiral, you be violent, you become this, you become that, so you can't live with us if you're not going to be on your meds, but we can't pay for your meds because we're struggling to put food on the table. And then you have... And you can't hold down a job. Then you have the self-medication that they do with the other the drugs. Self- we're working on getting people hooked up with some of those resources. Another part of the program I would love to see come to fruition would be able to have those medications and somehow do like a weekly drop-off idea exchange out of Miami has started has started a program and they've had great success with it. They focus a lot, if you don't know, there's a huge AIDS population that's homeless in Miami. So those medications are super expensive. So what they have done is, and they, they service any medication you get, but they've had a cargo thingy, like off a train? What do you call those? Cargo box thing? Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. And they've put AC into it, and they like it looks like a post office inside, and everybody has a little box. They put their name on the box, and they put their prescriptions in there. And they've got the little pill counter thingies, and they fill them once a week, and they go out on the street, and they hand them out to their clients that need medication. Good. Which I think is so important, because if you can keep people on their meds, they're going to improve. Because if I'm bipolar, and I'm making my $9 an hour at McDonald's, and I don't have my meds, and I start to spiral, I'm probably going to yell at people. I'm probably not going to present professional Mm-hmm. If I'm in a manic episode, I'm probably going to be loud and obnoxious, and I'm going to get fired. And then where do I go? Because I'm not going to be able to do well in an interview as long as I'm in this manic phase. So where do I go? There is no place for them to go, which is the last phase of what I would love to see our program become is some sort of housing. Mm-hmm. And I plug Maureen with Families in Transition up in New England only because she has done such a great job of doing that. And I don't know how many houses she has now. I'm embarrassed. She had two when I was with her. She has, I believe, eight now. But they've also, they've broken those housing units into families that are just homeless, mothers in recovery. There's a house for people over 65 that can't afford to pay rent. They don't get enough social security. There's a house that deals strictly with people with mental health issues coming into their life and they don't know who they are and they don't want to open the door and they don't want to let you in. So they just leave. It's scary. They're like, I don't trust these people. I'm going to leave. So she has been very fortunate and her employees are long-term employees. Most of the people have been with the program for years. So she's allowed to set these people up with a case manager and social workers that are going to be there for the long term so they don't feel like who are you why are you coming here i don't know you what do you mean your replacement they get the same people for a long period of time it was something that nobody was looking at why are these people not continuing in treatment because you're freaking them out because you've given them a new case manager every couple months Mm -hmm. because you're burning people out when you're in that public system. So through the nonprofit, she was able to stabilize a lot of that. So the whole, that's the homeless angle for me is that I would love to see more housing for the homeless. 
along with for people in recovery, because it's hard to get an apartment when you're first coming out of recovery. It's hard to leave a halfway house where, and I'm not um, just throwing out numbers, the average rent at a halfway house in our area is $150 a week. So if you're paying $600 a month, right off the bat, as soon as you get a job, and honestly, when you're in halfway, you're usually behind in your rent. Mm-hmm. Because you don't get a job and don't get paid for probably at least the first three weeks. So you're already three weeks behind. Right, because they don't pay you to, to ahead of time. They pay you in, yeah. Yeah, in reverse. So you're three weeks behind when you get, if you're lucky, when you get your first paycheck, if you can find a job right away. So most people are paying closer to $200 a week because they're trying to catch up on that back rent. So they don't get far now. And now you want them to get security deposit and first or last in Florida, I believe. You can only get one or the other. And where do you get that money when you're taking jobs making like $10 an hour? Because most people in recovery also have gaps in their resume. Absolutely. You're not getting the best paying jobs right off the bat. Even if you're great at what you do, unless you have some sort of trade, you're not getting the best paying right out of the gate or a job that was held for you. Mm-hmm. that you're going back to, right? So there's a gap there and something needs to fill that gap. There has to be housing that people can afford. What is the point of having low-income housing if it's still more than what people can reasonably afford to pay and put food on the table and keep the lights on? And God forbid your kid want a Christmas gift or need new shoes or want to go to a birthday party. You're done. That that's your whole budget. Absolutely. And that you can't afford it. So, are you doing this? Mm-hmm. That live somewhere. You, or God forbid you get a car and you have to put gas in a car, pay car insurance, pay for a couple of repairs. I remember when a flat tire was enough to put me out of business for a while because I couldn't, I wouldn't have the money in the bank to get a new tire. Most people live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, and it's ridiculous that we're overlooking that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because homelessness isn't something I feel like that happens suddenly in most cases. Some people get thrown out on the streets and some people um, get thrown out of housing and whatever. In general, homelessness happens slowly. We didn't expect it to be so cold and we turned on the heat and the light bill went up by $75. So I'm going to have to take it out of this bill. Okay, well, now I took it out of this bill. Now I'm going to have to. And eventually, three, four, five months down the road, you're short on the rent. Yeah. It's a gradual spiral. And the other thing is people don't know what resources are out there. That's I'm part of the reason that I'm doing these podcasts, especially yeah, here I'm, in our local area, is to make sure that people know the resources that are out there. Because even I don't know, and I work with this population. Yeah, it's a shame that people aren't more, I don't know, loud about what they do. Yeah. Trying to find help. Nobody knows. Nobody talks to one another. And that's one of the things I love about Mike is that he's like connected to everybody. He's more than happy to tell you, here, I'm going to send you a client. Here's a client for you. Here, you can do this better than I can. Mm-hmm. But there's so much in the nonprofit industry in general of this attitude of, I'm not going to share what I have. And we're just hurting the people that were meant to be helping. So being able to help people stop that spiral when it stops. Mm-hmm. Is a big deal and then being able to take the people who don't make enough to make ends meet 
in any sort of meaningful way. How many of the population that you work with have children? I would say at least 50%. And of that 50%, probably 75% of them are either in DCF custody or involved in an ongoing DCF case. So you can see the impact that all of this has on the welfare of children in general. Children, absolutely. Really children, but one of the great, children are probably the, one of the largest victims of opioid crisis. On the flip side, our grandparents who are raising their kids. And there's a great support group. And of course I don't have it. There's a support group out of Europe. That's what they deal with. It's for grandparents who have had to take over and raise their children. Their grandchildren. You always raise your children. Their grandchildren. Because that's kind of that flip side. If most kids end up getting, a lot of our kids end up getting placed with grandparents or siblings. At 70 years old, who's ready to take on a kid? Right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, even at 60, somebody hands you a new baby. I have a friend that has four of her grandchildren. Four. And her daughter said to her, said to the nurses, not to her, when they gave her the fourth baby, I'm just going to get pregnant again. And they were like, what? And she's, my mom's taking this one, right? And they were like, yeah. And they're like, she's not. I'm just going to go get pregnant again until I have one that I can keep and my mom stops taking them. Lord have mercy. Your kid's on a machine. They had him on this blood recycling thing because he was born addicted to crack. It was horrible. They had to drain most of his blood and clean it and put it back in. And you're going to keep having babies just so you can show your mom that you can keep one? And she, Marianne, had to be in her 60s with four little kids running around her house. Mm-hmm. And grandparents raising their grandchildren is a huge thing. Huge. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's an issue. Yeah. Uh, lots of us don't have IRAs and retirement funds set aside. And Social Security just isn't meant to pay for you to take care of a kid. If you, especially when you look at people who didn't work a lot throughout their life for whatever reason, and now obviously they're trying to raise grandkids on their Social Security tax. Yeah, I get that they get a little kick from DCF, whatever that might be, and they get extra food stamps. But again, raising kids in a way that's realistic because yes, they need food on the table. Yes, they need a bed to sleep in, but they also need the most basic things that kids need, mm-hmm. which is being able to socialize with their friends, being able to go on field trips, getting new shoes when they need them. And I don't believe kids need three hundred dollars sneakers. Just shoes, just having shoes to wear, mm-hmm. and not having to wait till their toes are poking out the top of the shoe, and then waiting another three weeks because mom that mom just got paid and she'll get paid again in two weeks, but you didn't catch me on payday, so it's going to be a while before I can get their shoes. Or waiting for the child support check to come in. The child support that doesn't come most of the time. That never comes. Yeah, mm-hmm. that check. Mm-hmm. The mystery. Maybe yeah. I'll show up, maybe it won't it's somewhere. <laughs> right? Parents need to have the money. Grandparents, whoever stuck, I didn't make that. Whoever is raising children need to have some way to get the funds to raise those children in an appropriate way where they are not only getting their physical needs met, but again, their emotional, mm-hmm. intellectual, spiritual needs met. Let me ask you this. If someone is listening to this podcast right now and they're considering treatment for their addiction 
what would you say to them? Do it for yourself. Do it because you're sick and tired of being sick and tired and you want to be a better person. Mm -hmm. Don't go into it thinking that it's going to be easy because treatment is hard. And it's expected that you'll slip up and fall. Yeah, I expect my clients to slip at some point. I'm always shocked if they don't. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, fall. See, it's okay to fall as long as you fall forward. Is my logic on falling? Mm-hmm. You're allowed to slip and fall. Just fall forward. You're allowed to slip and fall. Pick up the phone and call and tell somebody. Mm-hmm. I slipped. I slipped. Can help me out. But be prepared. If you're going into treatment, be prepared that it's going to be hard. If it's not hard, you're not in the right treatment center. <laughs> it should hurt. You should leave therapy sessions and feel like, oh my God, why are they scraping up my brain? That was agonizing. Remember that treatment isn't the cure-all. There's plenty of work that needs to be done outside of treatment. Like therapy that you spoke of. Yeah, continuing therapy. I need a program that works for you. I talked about not being able to settle into AA when I wasn't ready to stop yet. But when I did stop, I went to meetings for a very long time. And I got a lot out of that, a lot of support, and a lot of that sense that I was important and I mattered and people actually cared about me, even though I was still a failure. And I had a group of people that every time I walked through the door asked me how I was, whether I was doing okay, how are the kids, and expected me to succeed. When I went back to school the first time and I talked about being scared of going to school because I wasn't ready to give up my abusive boyfriends yet and my abusive boyfriend was telling me I was too stupid and I was never going to graduate. They're the ones that told me that I was smart enough and I could do it. To find that support network to cheer you on. Mm -hmm. And if you can't afford treatment, don't give up. Just keep calling people. Somebody will give in eventually. And there is affordable treatment out there. There is. Patronizing Wellness for New York River County can help the indigent, indigent fake farms, does free treatment. There, there are programs. Lots of phone calls and lots of digging. Don't lose hope. If you want to stop, you can stop. And somebody will eventually direct you to the right place. Right. And it's not just stopping the using. It's stopping the cycle, right? Stopping the cycle, dealing with those underlying things that make us act the way we act our traumas trauma abuse neglect abandonment issues estd ptsd that one's for later <laughs> you know we see that a lot in the military guys they've seen so much and they become numb mm-hmm. and they don't know what to do with that not being of the field so many people come into treatment and they're like, I don't think that not being able to feel will keep you in that cycle of abuse because if you can't feel the joy of the small things in life, what's keeping you going? Yeah. Short and sweet. Why do you go to, why do you come to treatment if you're, you're thinking about it? Because you deserve to have a better life than what you're living today. That is true. That is true. Now, what would you say to those that are listening that think that they might want to become involved in these type of things or find a way to help out? If you're thinking about becoming involved, do some research, look around, find out exactly what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Because 
driving around a mobile unit and going out and dealing with people in the woods, doing those kind of things isn't for everybody, but there is so many places where they can use help that there is a program that needs you. And if you can't find a program that needs you, call Team Success and we'll find a program that needs you. Plug in and talk with us with somebody else who needs um, the help. But well, definitely our harm reduction program, we will take people on our recovery program. We're looking for volunteers, people to start helping out, getting stuff done. Again, it gets to a shameless. Yo, do another one. I need a grant writer right now. So if you know how to do that, feel free to call us because we desperate we're in desperate need of a grant writer. There's a ton of money out there that we can't access. Technical experience behind the scenes. We need people dealing with the technical stuff all the time. There's a place for you if you want to be involved on the on the grant missions. We'll find you something to do because there's plenty of that to be done. There is. And if it's not for us. We'll find you somebody. How do they get in touch with you, Tara? That's a really good question, Susan. Do you know the team success phone number? Let's give them your phone number for now. No, let's not. <laughs> I have the team success phone number. Sorry, guys. All I have is my cell phone, and I already have business calls that come to that number against my better judgment. And I can't answer my phone all the time because I do counseling and... I do not answer my phone when I'm doing groups or counseling. So it is team success, 772-236-7770. I will give you my email though, which is reduction at yahoo.com. Spell it. P-A-R-A, harm, H-A-R-M, reduction, R. E-D-U-C-T-I-O-N at yahoo.com. All one word, all lowercase, and you can email me anytime. Here's the team success card. Awesome. Thank you, Tara. And thank you, Susan, for having me. You're welcome. I think by putting the word out there that there's a need and helping to educate the community and what's necessary and how they can help is really the key. To success, yes. honestly, I think that's the key. So, thank you for providing all this information today. And again, if anyone wants to get a hold of Team Success for any resources or if they need to find a way to help out, you can always call Team Success at 772-236-7770. So, Tara, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on today, and it was my pleasure. Thank. Thanks for listening to this episode of From Foster Care to Family Law, a Child Welfare Focus. I hope that this interview provided some valuable insight to help you deal with your unique circumstances. If you found this episode useful, please share this with friends and family that could benefit from this information. If you have a family law need or related matter, please contact me directly and I will be happy to help you.